We are looking together this spring at the church, the bride of Christ. What are the benefits of being a part of the visible church? How does one become a member of Christ's church? What difference does it make? Why should you be a member of the church? What does Jesus think about his church? How do we know if we love the church? What is the business of the church? And today we talk about what are the marks of a true church. So if you would, would you stand with me? And we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We read this passage and preached on it last week. We're going to look again just at one verse. Verse 42. The grass withers and the flowers fade, ladies and gentlemen, but God's word stands forever. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. That's in our price range. That's it. That's the house. You know, when you look for a new house, you have certain things that you're looking for. You have certain things that are musts for you and your family when you're searching for a new place to live. It must be in your price range. It must have a certain number of bedrooms and of bathrooms. For some of you, it must have a lot of trees in the yard. For others of you, it must have a lot of natural light. For some of you, you want an open floor plan. For others of you, you want that pool. Or you don't want that pool. Or you want, mmm, a neighborhood pool. For some of you, you want certain kinds of molding. For some of you, you want certain kinds of neighborhoods. For some of you, you want specific kinds of homes. No matter how diverse our lists of what we're looking for in a house might be, there's one thing, two things, no, three things that every single one of us want in a home. We want a foundation, we want a frame, and we want a roof. Because no matter what the amenities are that you're looking for in a particular house, if a house doesn't have a foundation, if it doesn't have a frame, and if it doesn't have a roof, friends, it is something, but it is not a house. Likewise, the search for a new church can be absolutely exhausting. How do you even know how to find a new church? What do you look for? For some of us, we look for particular programs. For some of us, we look for particular places in town. For some of us, just like we're looking for a new home, we have a long list of amenities that we're looking for to find that church. But friends, I'm here to tell you that there are three marks of the church, that without these three marks, it is something, but it is not a church. How do you find a new church? You tell me. Google? The Yellow Pages? That, that's a book that has yellow pages in it that is in a phone book that you find on Ask Around. How do you find a new church? And how do you know if that church is a true church? By one count, there are over 20,000 denominations today. That means that you could go not only to a different church every week of your life, you could go to a different denomination every Sunday of your life. How do you know if a church is a church? The three marks that scripture gives us, it gives us a foundation. 
It gives us mark number one, the word of God. It gives us a frame. Mark number two, the administration of the sacraments. It gives us a roof. Mark number three, the accountability of the local church. Listen, a house without a foundation, a frame, and a roof is something, but it's not a house. A church without the word of God, the administration of the sacraments, and accountability is something, but it is not a church. Let's look at these three marks together, shall we? And let's ask the question, what are they exactly, and why do they matter so much? First, look with me in Acts 2, verse 42. Here's you, this is where you find the very first mark of the church. You, you look where the early church looked for their authority and their accountability. The early church, right after Pentecost, they had this amazing, amazing revival where 3,000 souls were saved. And they did what? They gathered in worship, and they first dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church sermons that they heard were expositions of the scriptures. For them, that means the Old Testament. And in the exposition of those sermons, they were not merely telling you what the data is that the Bible teaches you about life. It was not just simply a moral lesson. What kind of sermons did people hear in the early church? Just after Peter and John healed the lame beggar at the beautiful gate, Peter preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 3, and this is what he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, pulling in from the Old Testament, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, finding even in the Old Testament the centrality of the figure of Jesus Christ, whom you delivered, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees and Jews, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and the righteous one and asked him, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And then what is the point of Peter's sermon? Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is the kind of sermon the early church heard. It was about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was drawing his people to repentance in the midst of the presence of the Lord. In other words, the early church valued the preached word of God. And we have a very, very sub-biblical view of preaching, and therefore we have a very sub-biblical view of the church. It doesn't really matter. Like, seriously, let's ask honest questions. What is the difference if the church is just going to be a, more, a lesson of morality for us on Sunday mornings, why are we here? Let's join the Rotary Club, the Junior League, the Boy Scouts of America. The church of Jesus Christ is marked by the preaching of his word. And some of you say, well, listen... Today, certainly technology has replaced the preaching of the word. Like right now, like hearing this guy's voice speaking, like certainly with all of our technological advancements, there's probably a better way to get God's point across, isn't there? Jesus doesn't think so. In a scathing parable that he gives, Jesus tells a story in Luke 16 of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you know the story, right? It is the rich man who refuses to help Lazarus who daily begs at his gate. 
And when the rich man dies, the rich man, Jesus says, is in hell, in torment. And the rich man says, if you would please just have Lazarus dip his finger in water and touch my tongue because I am thirsty. And the Lord says it won't do any good. So then he says, well, 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 if you send Lazarus to my brothers, send them to my brothers and my father and tell them the truth. And Jesus says, Lazarus being in heaven, the rich man being in hell. Jesus says to Lazarus something very piercing. This is the point of the parable. Most people think it's about, you know, the reality and literal nature of hell. That is certainly true here. But the point that Jesus makes at the very end is this. Even if somebody was raised from the dead to proclaim the truth, Jesus says, I have given them Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Jesus is saying, listen, even if somebody came out at the next funeral that you attend, if a body rose up from that casket and began to proclaim to you the truth, you would no more believe it than you would believe the preached word of God. It is God's ordained means to communicate his word in the preaching of his word, so much so that the Germans in, 15, in the 1560s said that to hear the preached word of God is to hear the very word of God itself. Luther said there are the incarnate word is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And he said there's an inscribed word that is Scripture. And then Luther says there is a shouted word, the preaching of the gospel. And all three of those are ways that Christ mediates his presence before his people in gathered worship. And it is the Lord's ordained means to strengthen you in your faith. The church, despite the amazing technology that's available to us today, it's amazing to me, actually, that Jesus would say, it is through the preaching of my word that I communicate my truth. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Paul says in Acts chapter 10. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. A house without a foundation is not a house. And the first mark of Christ's church is the preached word of God. The authority of his word. Now, here's a question for you. What happens when the sermons are so painfully dull? It is true, some sermons are painfully dull. It is also equally true that some listeners are horrible listeners. Worship is a dialogue. And just as funny and as witty as you desire me to be every week, just as funny and witty as you love your favorite ministers, Worship is a dialogue by which the gospel is going forth out of the mouth, the one who's preaching God's word, and the ears of those who are hearing it are leaning forward in expectation for the Holy Spirit to speak. Are you here to be entertained? Or are you here to receive what God's holy word says to you? It's a huge difference. And therefore, in God's church, the chief mark, the first mark, the foundation, is the word of God preached with all of its boldness. 
Paul said, we also thank God constantly for this. He was writing to the uh, Thessalonica. That when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. First mark of the church, the foundation of a church, is the preached word of God. Second mark, the frame, the sacraments of the church. Now, if you grew up Roman Catholic, you believe that there are seven sacraments. But we Protestants believe biblically there are only two. What are they? The Lord's Supper, which we practice every week whenever we're not doing the second of the sacraments, baptism. And these are signs and seals. If you win a Heisman Trophy, what do you get? You get a trophy, right? When you win the Masters, you get the green jacket. When you become a member of your club, you get a membership card. When you become a member of Christ's church, what do you get? You also get a mark. And that mark is the mark of baptism. It is given to every person that's a member of the visible church of God, even though some of those children who are baptized don't yet believe the gospel. They nevertheless are members of the visible church. And we pray that the conditions of their baptism, that is faith, will one day be met and they truly will be Christ's in union with him. The sacraments of the church are means of grace, which means that they are the way that God intends to strengthen you. It's just water. It's just wine. It's just bread. But they are the ways that God reminds you that he is with you. Whenever you have a meal with somebody, whenever you share their home, you break bread together. You have fellowship together, which is what they had in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what? And to fellowship. And then they get specific, the breaking of the bread. Most scholars believe that the early church shared an entire meal together in corporate worship in some way, shape, or form. But part of that meal was reliving the Lord's Supper, was participating in the Lord's Supper together as a picture of Jesus being the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And whether this particular passage is talking about a meal in general, it is at least talking about the practice of the Lord's table in worship. That's what the early church believed that it taught. And so therefore, when we come together with God's people, listen, some churches practice it quarterly, some churches practice it uh, annually. Listen, we, we want you to share a meal because that's what friends do. You share a meal, you eat together. And Jesus wants to invite you to dine with him every single week. The Lord's Supper is to remind you that you need fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ more than you think you need. And in order for you to do that in the midst of a very busy week, we invite you to come forward to the table repentantly and joyfully. It's a celebration. It's to be, you should run to the table, as I often say when I fence the table. It is not something to be taken lightly, but it is something to be enjoyed because it's a means of helping us become more and more like Christ calls his people to be. And secondly, baptism. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, what? All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Go and teach in my name, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a sacrament or an ordinance given to us by Christ himself. That's what makes a sacrament a sacrament. It is given to us by Christ. 
Paul says, I delivered unto you that which I also received from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, go and baptize people. It is given to us by Christ. Those are the two marks of his sacraments. And so therefore, we practice those together. And in baptism, as I've said, it is a visible mark upon that child, upon that man or woman of being brought into the visible community of faith. Now, let me say something to those of you who come from backgrounds as I did and do, I guess, um, who grew up in churches that didn't practice infant baptism. Again, let me reiterate this. We baptize adults who come to faith in Jesus because it's awesome, and Scripture clearly teaches that. But again, we also baptize children of those adults because the covenant promises are also for their children. The adults become members of the visible church, and they're also part of the invisible church because of their faith. Those children, however, are part of the visible church, but they're not yet part of the invisible church because they don't yet personally believe. But we are going to raise them up under the sign of God's covenant community, and we're going to pray for the day, and we're going to encourage them in the admonition of the Lord, and we're going to celebrate the day that they can come to the Lord's table, and they can enjoy Christ's communion as one who personally believes the gospel. Some people dedicate their children, and then they baptize them upon their conversion. We baptize them upon their dedication. It's more than their dedication, but it's not less. And we invite them to the Lord's table at their conversion. It's not that we do nothing. It's that we celebrate when they can come to the table and partake of Christ's body and blood for the first time. It's beautiful. And the frame of the house guides you through the house, much like the sacraments of the church guide you along in your spiritual growth. Do you see the picture? The foundation is God's preached word. The frame of the house are the sacraments of the church to guide you along in your spiritual journey. Now, thirdly, if you have a house that has a foundation, if you have a house that has a frame, it's not yet a house, you need a roof. And this is the missing mark of the church. The accountability of the church. The third mark of the church is its accountability. When you read Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation, when Jesus gets to Pergamum and Thyatira, there are serious issues that were ignored. And what does Jesus say to these churches, supposing to demonstrate these three marks? He goes after them for missing the third mark. There were challenging situations for their leaders, and they didn't hold their people accountable. And therefore, Jesus says, if you don't do it, I will. And you know who I'm going to start with, leader of that church? I'm going to start with you. The phrase church discipline raises eyebrows, and it gives us images of, like, tyranny and authoritarian pastors who are just, like, egotistical and mean, and you want to run as far away as possible from them, and rightly so. But the biblical view of church discipline is far richer. You can go your entire life to a church in North America and never hear about church discipline. But it is indeed a biblical concept. Edmund Burke's famous quote, The only thing needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. That applies to the church, doesn't it? There's a lot of reasons why church leaders don't practice church discipline in the church. They're fearful that you're going to leave. 
they don't have the setup or the order to know how to do it. And um, it's messy. But like, can you imagine if you, if you were to bring, bring someone to the ER and they had a huge gash on their head and they are bleeding profusely and you were to bring them into the ER and they were to rush you into the room, the operating room, and the doctor were to walk in there and the doctor would go, whew, I'm scared of this one. Mmm. I don't really know what to do. It's messy. You would say that doctor is to be called to account for malpractice. But yet in the church, we have plenty of churches. I know it's silent because you know this to be true. We have plenty of churches who when people are really struggling, they are really hurting. They have nowhere to go with their hurts because the church has created this environment where you've got to be perfect. You've got to paste your smile on Sunday morning. And so they look at the church and they're like, I'm just not impressed. I don't want to go there because I don't have it all together. I just want to say to you as one person who does not have it all together, that if you're struggling over your sin, that is the greatest mark of your spiritual health. Because living people don't struggle. But if you're not struggling over sin, you're either not seeing it or you're dead. We struggle together at this church because it's a safe place to struggle. And we do so because we practice what's called accountability. The session, the elders of this church, there are five people on the session, me and four other men. Every one of us had the same authority. I don't have any different authority than Will Parker, Mike Phelps, Nathan Keltner, Jason Kreider. We had the same authority. And we are held to account by a regional church called the Presbytery, just like you find in Acts chapter 15, for example. And one of the things, if I can be really honest, can I be honest? I'm going to be honest. I've always been honest. Here it is. One of the reasons why I was ordained, I chose to be ordained, and why this denomination became so beautiful to me was because I saw church discipline practiced in a way that felt right. Because it wasn't about beating people up, and the pastor was held to account just like the members of that church were. Biblically, what do you do when you practice church discipline? Well, there's positive practices of church discipline. Those are what are happening right now. Whenever you hear the Word of God preached, this is a form of discipline to us. We're being taught. We're being called to repentance. We're being called to repentance to see how much Jesus loves His church and how much you've neglected it. And we are called to enjoy the fact that Jesus, the messiness, the craziness of the local church, though it may be thick with problems, Jesus has called you to love her because this is the means by which he intends you to grow as members. And there are positive aspects of the discipline of the church. They promote godliness, the godly example, the instruction of preaching, prayer, and the sacraments. There are also prevenient stages of church discipline. Those are things like instruction in AM discipleship and at Trinity Kids, helping children learn the catechism. Corporate worship, systematic learning, pastoral visits, prayer by your pastors over you. These are prevenient stages of church discipline. In other words, they are preventative medicine. And then there are remedial stages. That is, they're instituted when there's a sin that has already occurred. 
And Matthew chapter 18 gives us a very clear order of events when that happens. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, stage one, go and tell him his fault, just privately. And if he hears you, you have won your brother. That's the object of church discipline. It's awesome. If he doesn't hear you, then there's the, um, the arbitration stage of the church. You take two or three people with you, and you go and you confront them. And if they say, listen, I want nothing to do with you guys. Get out of my face. I want nothing to do with this. Then at that point, if he refuses to them, step three, it says, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's the formal or the public stage of church discipline. But it doesn't have to go to that point. Because the goal of any act of accountability in the local church is to hold that person accountable, to win them over. You need a story. All right, so here's a story. So when um, there's a story of, of a church that one of the reasons why we are fearful of church discipline is because you have no appeal. And you feel like, listen, if the elders were to bring a sin to me or they were to, I was to be charged with something by a member of another congregation, like I can't, that's, I, I would just leave. I wouldn't stay around. Why? Because I have no place to appeal, to get a second opinion, as it were. But in our polity, you do. story of a woman in a church in Texas in our denomination who was disciplined by her church. I tell this at every new members class so that you hear how it works. She was disciplined by her church and the, they came to her personally and she says, I do, not, I do not think that what you're pointing out in my life, I hear you. I don't think it's sin. Then they brought it to two or three people and they confronted her. The elders did and they, she said, listen, I hear what you're saying. I don't think that's sin. And they just, the elders of the church decided to excommunicate her from the church. They kicked her out of the church. And they publicly acknowledged it before the church and said, she's removed from our fellowship. They dropped her from the rolls. There are good and right reasons to do that. Please hear me. Because pastors are there to protect the sheep. And there are good reasons to do that because you want to glorify God, purify the church, and you want to use the means that God has given you through his word to reclaim the sinner. The purpose is to reclaim them, not to shun them, not to embarrass them. But, question, this woman thought she had been unjustly disciplined, so she asked the regional group of churches, which we call the presbytery, to hear the case. And you know what they did? All of us heard the case. We heard the situation, and we actually thought she was right. And so the presbytery came to the church one Sunday morning, after they had talked to the elders about it and arranged it. And the men on that session publicly apologized to that church for their abuse, their pastoral abuse of that woman. And they repented. And she was restored to full fellowship. And amazingly, she still goes to that church. It was the church in action. And it was beautiful. Some people have said to me that the most beautiful service they've ever seen was a horribly difficult service where we had to remove somebody from our church. Why is it beautiful? Because it is the church doing the missing mark in love. The purpose is to reclaim the sinner. It's never to shun them or shame them. Listen, it's to bring them back to the gospel. When I was growing up, I was 11 years old. I'll never forget it. It was 1989. And after the sermon at my church, there were, it was a large church, and the pastor said, and now this gentleman wants to come up. He has a word for the congregation. And this man came up to the pulpit of the church, and he fiddled with his wedding ring. 
And he said, I'm here to confess to you that 11 months ago, I almost lost the greatest gift outside my salvation that the Lord has ever given to me, my wife. And I am here before you to confess to you and to ask your forgiveness as a member of this church for my unfaithfulness to her. Pin drops. And he said, the church exists, this is a man's voice, the church exists to hold our feet to the fire. And they have held mine to the fire. And I am broken and I'm repentant. And I'm coming to ask your forgiveness. It's a beautiful sign of repentance and faith. And the reason why I remember that so well, because that man was my father. I'll never forget it. In fact, I've never actually seen it done since. One of the reasons why we struggle with the church is because the church does not exhibit the marks of the church. Because a house without a roof is something that you're going to get wet. There's no protection for you. And when we come together as a member of our church, we pledge together that we will uphold the purity and we will promote its peace. And that takes guts and it's messy. And we as the elders need your prayers to do that really well. We need your help to do it because we don't want to be the only ones doing it. Galatians 6.1 says, you who see a brother in a sin, you should restore him in a spirit of meekness lest you also be tempted. You have to be careful. Confrontation, confrontation is not a bad thing. It is the mark of love. And we have a problem with confrontation and we need to get over that together. But if you can begin to love each other well and to help through community groups and other means, to help each other see their sin, and it begins by being honest about your sin, then you're able to be the church that Christ calls us to be. A house is not a house without a foundation, a preached word of God. It is not a house without a frame to help guide you along the way, the sacraments of the church. And a house is not a house unless it has a roof over your head. The discipline and admonition of God's people. Do you see those three marks? The third mark is assumed in the word koinonia, in the word fellowship in Acts chapter 2. It's the only time Luke uses the word. In all of Luke and Acts, fellowship, if you're going to have true fellowship, it demands that you reconcile with each other. And how do you reconcile when there are grievances against you unless you deal with the sin in a biblical way? None of us are beyond the bounds of the discipline of the church. None of us. And the reason why I so enjoy being your pastor is because I know that you're protected from me. And I'm also protected from you. So we can get over our differences. We can hold high the word of God. And we can preach it in all of its glory and grandeur. Because you know why? It's in our price range. That's it. That's the church. Because Jesus loved the church enough to die for her. And Jesus is calling some of you who have lived on the margins of the church to actually move closer to the church. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. There's a lot of reasons not to do it. The fear of commitment, I understand. But would you pray about it? And if you're looking for a church and you're not a regular attender here, would you look for those three marks of a church? They are the marks of a true church. There may be wonderful amenities that come with those, but they will at least need to be those three. 
those are the marks of the church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is a new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Jesus loves you so much. He reminds you of that, reminds you of that love in the presence of his people in worship. In worship that's marked by the preached word of God, by the administration of the sacraments, and, and yes, by holding each other accountable under the authority of God's holy word. Let's be the kind of church that God calls us to be together. And let's not look down, repent from your superiority complex if you feel like you got marks of the church and other people don't. Please don't do that. Run to God's word. Love others in this community. Draw draw them forth into God's covenant family to hear the word of God preached and to repent of your self-righteous tendencies, even as I do of my own. And then we'll begin to be the church. That'll be beautiful. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love the church because she is your bride. And you have called us as those who lead your church to hold the marks of the church visible. The preached word of God, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. And Lord, as we learn about your church, Lord, there are many things that we um, have misunderstood. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to trust you. That we'll trust that you put us in this church to grow us, to nurture us, to help us pastorally develop as you've called us to be. And Lord, I pray that if there are any men and women in this church that have hardened their hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, oh, Father, that you would melt their hearts and you would help them to run to your cross. You're proud of your people. You sing over us your love. You tell us that you love us. Help us to repent of our inability to love ourselves like you love us. Oh, Father, would you do that for your glory's sake? And help our church to be a true church for your glory, not to us, O Lord, not to us. To your name be the glory, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen.